Good morning. How are you doing? Okay. How's your daily spiritual practice going? How is your daily spiritual practice going? Oh, okay. All right. Just checking. Because um, we're going to talk about what happens after you die today. And I don't want your lack of having your spiritual practice, you know, send you the other way. I, uh, I forgot to put this in the announcement slides, but this afternoon at 4 o'clock, there will be a special presentation by uh, the musicians here at St. Paul's called a Parisian event or something like that. It's at 4 o'clock. It's not a fundraiser. It's a fun time. So we don't have even songs during the summertime. So uh, if you want to come back and hear some exceptional music this afternoon at 4 o'clock, uh, you are encouraged to do that. I know that going home getting relaxed and then coming back is, but do it anyway. It would be good for, good for you. I checked with Tim right before uh, coming up here and he said that we have about as many people uh, all over the country who watch online live streaming as we do here in person. Um, and so we want to make sure that those of you who are watching online don't outnumber us because you get the whole earth out of kilter that way. But uh, I'm thankful to Lauren Cross and Joshua Rodkey for being able to run the equipment back there that makes it possible. Thank you all for doing that. So let's do as we do and begin in silence. Do whatever it takes for you to be here. Take those three deep breaths. Do what is necessary to be present. To open your heart and mind. And to be awake. So may grace be in our heads and in our thinking May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. It's appropriate ending for what we're going to talk about today. And as usual, my goal is that this time contribute in our growing in our understanding of self, God, and the other, and uh, that we leave here with a commitment to treat others as if they were us because they are. And following the lead of Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So, can we leave the past behind? In um, opening the door to talk about life after death or what happens after we die, the first question is this, can we leave the past behind? And what I want to do today in this talk is to uh, give some perspective and history, most of it very personal, 
on how we in the West developed our current understanding of dying and then death and the afterlife and then say something about what I think is next. Um, and uh, when I am talking today, I'm talking to people who live in the West. I'm not talking about people who live in Eastern cultures because they inherited a different mindset about this. I'm not talking about people who live in South American cultures or First Nations peoples. I'm not talking about people who live in uh, African countries. I'm talking about people who inherited a particular view of religion and spirituality that we got convinced into thinking was the only way to see things, the only way to see things religiously. And a lot of this I have come to believe over the years comes in our DNA. We're born into a culture that leads us to think and experience things in a different way. So that's the first thing just to be aware of. There is evidence that from the very beginning of Homo sapiens species that there's been a religion. John Dominic Crossan is the one that I got the line from that we're hardwired for religion just like we're hardwired to speak a language. The language that we speak is dependent on the country, the tribe into which we grow. So is the religion that we inherit. But from the very beginning, there's evidence that we have had religious rituals and religious customs. The word homo sapiens is a Latin, two Latin words, um, generally translated meaning wise man or wise human. And as humans, we certainly give an ample evidence that we're well informed and knowledgeable, but whether we are wise or not, so along with self-awareness comes to this homo sapien species an awareness that is shared by no other living thing, and that is an awareness that we die. Of course, nothing lasts. Everything dies. Even the cosmos is going to die. Nothing lasts. The remains that you are looking at um, were found in Israel and are dated, carbon dated, from 92,000 years ago. That's how long that we have been having some kind of ritual, maybe, long, maybe much longer than that. Uh, death is only a problem for humans. Um, other things are not aware of their anxiety. And so in order to deal with our anxiety, we created religion. And um, all religions, are what we know as human constructs. That is, any religion in whatever form is socially constructed using the symbol system, including the words and images that are drawn from the culture in which it arises. This is very important to understand. And we'll talk more about this later on as, as I say how this this thing right here, this reality right here, affects how we view death and dying. So this is why you have religions varying from culture to culture. Uh, the religions of people in India and the Orient and Africa, indigenous peoples of various lands, they all develop different religious expressions, and each one of them believes that theirs is the correct religion, the true religion, the right religion. 
Um, though this seems so obvious that it does not need to be said, I'm going to say it. There has not always been a Christian religion. And there's not ever been, ever, ever been one version of the Christian religion. There's always been diversity in how people have experienced the life and teachings of Jesus and then have expressed them. Um, there was not one God until about 10,000 B.C. in what the people who study this sort of thing call the, architect, uh, the uh, um, agricultural revolution when people began to gather in tribes and the leader had one tri one the tribe had one leader then the religion needed one god and since so much seemed to come from above that god would placed above the earth in the sky and was seen as the being who gave both good and bad to people um, other, other religions came up with a lot of gods. And before monotheism came on the scene, you had a god of the wind, a god of the fire, a god of the rain, a god of the forest, a god of the trees. A god, and there were just lots of gods that showed up in many, many different ways. So religions are designed to deal with two things. They are designed to deal with security and to deal with anxiety. And after religions came into being, the, leader, the leaders of those religions used religion to exert control. Okay? You with me on this so far? That's sort of important. So religions deal with anxiety, and then they deal with creating um, control. So there is evidence, archaeological evidence, from the various earliest of human development, that there's always been a fascination with birth and death. How did life come into being and what happened when you die? One of the earliest depictions of God, and there are many different variations of this, is of God on a birthing bench giving birth. This is um, um, a slide from Africa, the idol figure from Africa. And humans have always shown some respect for the dead, burying the dead with items that would accompany them into the afterlife, weapons to fight with, food to survive on, sometimes even servants to serve them in the afterlife. You would hope not to have that particular job. And there's not a lot of data, a specific data about what people believed at different times about what happened after you died. There are various stories that developed in the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the various other things, but there's no consistent understanding of what happened um, when you return to the God who lived in the sky. You know I cannot resist mentioning books, so I'll give you two. If you're interested in following up on anything that I've said so far, two of the best sources are those by Karen Armstrong, The History of God and The Battle for God. They are both very, very readable books. Um, in The History of God, Karen Armstrong, who um, has spoken here in Houston just recently, um, I became acquainted with her through work in the Jesus Seminar, 
she's a very likable British woman who's incredibly brilliant. She used to be a nun. And in the history of God, she talks about how the three Abrahamic religions develop their understanding of God. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity develop that. And then in the battle for God, she talks about how various fundamental religions came into being in all of those three religions. Very readable, readable book. And I said last week that it is beyond my understanding how anyone can know the history of religion or the history of the Bible and come to believe that there's one religion or come to believe that the Bible should be interpreted literally. It's just hard to believe how that, that can happen. So if we grow up in a tribe or family that practices religion and we are handed a religion, not of our choosing, then we are taught by that tribe that this religion is the correct religion. It's the right religion, and because we trust our tribe to take care of us and protect us and to tell us the truth, we trust that what they have told us about religion is true, and that, indeed, the religion we have been given is the correct religion. Now, I am not demeaning religion. I hope it's obvious that I think it's valuable to have a religion and to practice a religion. I just think it's very important to know that they're humanly constructed things. They are not handed down from God from above and given to people as laws to practice. So don't make a religion immutable. It doesn't last. Nothing lasts. Not even you, which is the point of today's talk. So when a, religious per when a person's religious preferences get question, they frequently get upset. They get trouble. And, uh, and you can't have a rational discussion with an angry person. I've tried. <laughs> and further, you can bet that their angry answers do not come from a genuine religious commitment or from a genuine interest to know. They come from a desire to defend to get a position uh, because they don't like their security threatened, which is what religion was designed to do, was to cause people to feel safe. So if you look back over history and the history of religion, and more specifically the history of the Christian religion, you will see that we have tended to resist every new insight that has come into the world. The church has been the great resistor of new insight and truth, especially over the last 500 years. The problem is that this reactionary state causes us to come to realize that the heart cannot worship what the mind rejects. So very early in my life, I got the advice from a spiritual teacher not to put any label on myself. And I would encourage you to have that same practice. Don't put a label on yourself because every label you put on yourself is a trap. I'm young. I'm healthy. I'm rich. I'm married. 
I'm a Methodist? That all changes. Everything changes. Everything is subject to change. And when it comes to a struggle between what we believe to be true and what we want to be true, eventually knowledge and information always wins out. Always. In the long run. Now, this reactivity is exactly what you see in fundamentalists of the world today all over the globe. There is a move to the right towards certainty and security, and this always finds expression in the public arena. Leaders of various sorts promise that they can slow down or stop that which seems to be eroding old convictions, and yet it still shows up in the lack of equal pay for men and women, um, in opposing the right to vote for some people, um, in abortion bans that we're seeing across the country, in this insane desire to put the Ten Commandments into all every classroom, into why there's a renewed uh, push to discriminate against people in the LGBTQIA plus community. It's the desire to make sure that these old verities that we thought we could depend on and that protected us would not go away. And that's why you see this reactionary movement to the right. Uh, frightened people do frightening things. So our worldviews shift, or need to, every time there's a shift in physics, so that if you tie your beliefs, whether they be political beliefs, religious beliefs, to something that does not take what I just said into consideration, you're going to risk spending your life fighting a rear guard action instead of being open to what's coming down in, in, in the future. And so that is exactly the way that we have related to dying and death which is what I want to get into. Um, <clears throat> over the last couple hundred years, even, there's been a shift in how the church has seen, experienced, and related to death and dying. And consequently, in what we believe is the life to come. Um, and one of the shifts has to do with how Christian communities come together to dispose of bodies. Um, it used to be that almost inevitably when someone died, there was a funeral. Now there's not. Um, the funeral service stressed the power of God to, to overcome death. And today, we are more than likely to have not a funeral, but a memorial service that remembers the life of the departed more than focusing on the life to come. That's been one of the shifts that's occurred in my lifetime about death and dying. About 40 years ago, my best friend at the time died, and I was thinking this morning, about when I was thinking about this class, that um, Fred died of an illness now that could easily have been, uh, we've got the medical technology now that he might still be alive if uh, this had happened 40, 45 years ago when it, when it happened. So we went to his service, which is held here in a church, and his coffin was there. For those of you who don't know, there's a difference between a coffin and a casket. A coffin has to do with its size and shape. 
And uh, that's a picture of a coffin on the screen, and that's a picture of the casket. Casket used to started being used by the funeral industry as sort of a gentler way to, to talk about death and dying. It sounded, well, because the word casket comes from a European word. A casket was a place in which European ladies kept their jewelry. Their precious jewels were kept in a casket, and so we just appropriated that word to keep bodies in because they were the precious now departed jewels. So um, at any rate, we went to Fred's funeral service, and it was magnificent. The church was packed. He was a very beloved man, and um, it was the first service of that type that I had ever been to where the man who was doing, the, doing Fred's eulogy held Fred up in such a way that people in the congregation laughed at the funeral. I had never heard that before. But I was not serving a church at that time. And I, I, I made a vow to myself that if I'm ever in that position again to do a memorial service for anybody, I'm going to make sure that the people who come there laugh. And I don't tell any puns or any jokes. Just hold your memory up in such a way that the people who are gathered there can appreciate it and enjoy it and laugh at their memories of you. It's a wonderful thing to do. I've kept that vow ever since then. Um, now, you might be interested to know that prior to about 1760, there weren't any funeral homes. There are funeral parlors, as they were initially called. You might remember that from seeing some old movies. I found this out quite accidentally one day by doing some word sleuthing. I have always been interested in words, word origins, how words, how one word can have so many meanings. Like the word run can have a multitude of meanings. The word fast can have a multitude of meanings. I've always been interested in phrase origins. Why do we have, say some phrases than others? And I got curious, why do we call that room in the house the living room? I figured out why we called a room that my grandparents had in their uh, house in Portland, Tennessee. They had a little room off of the opening of the hall. They, you went into the front door and there was a vestibule in the home. And then they had a drawing room. And I thought it was where people went to draw. But it was the, people, the room where people withdrew because they could keep that room warm and not have to warm the rest of the house. When visitors came, they went into the withdrawing room. So what about the living room? Well, architectural learns from people's habits, right? So as huts became houses and architectural things developed, those who had the resources to do so had a room in the house that was dedicated to a place where people went to talk. And they gave that word, uh, that room, the, the word parlor. Parlor is a room that was in ancient monasteries. It was the room in a monastery where the monks went to talk. So you couldn't talk in the rest of the monastery, but you could go into the parlor and talk. So when architects created American homes, they had a room in the house that was the parlor where people went to talk. When somebody died, 
It was usually the women's responsibility to wash and dress the body. It was the men's responsibility to build a coffin. The body was placed in the coffin and then placed in the parlor of the home. This is before funeral homes. And then people would come and visit. And then the coffin was taken usually to the churchyard or to a family plot and put into the ground. That was, that was what happened. People would pay their respect. When people came to the parlor to pay respect to the, for the dead and to visit the family, those gatherings are called wakes. And it was not because people were frightened that the corpse might wake up. It was that they stayed awake to make sure that evil spirits did not enter the body before burial. And if you were, were religious, and at that time the religion of most people was Roman, was Catholicism, then you said the rosary. And so that's the origin of praying the rosary for the dead was done during the wake when the body was in the parlor of the home. Okay? During the Civil War, men died far away from home. They couldn't get the bodies back. Not every family could afford to do that, so most bodies were put in mass graves, just like today in battlefields. But if the family had the resources to get the body back, they would need some way of preserving the body until they got the body back for proper burial, and that's when embalming came back into vogue. Now, you had to realize that embalming is something that came from Egypt a long, long time ago. So humans have had the capacity to know how to do that, but we didn't make an industry out of it until the Civil War. So we started embalming bodies and bringing them back. And the people who took this on, they undertook what nobody else wanted to do, so they were called undertakers. That's how that happened. And they needed a place to put their coffins, to display their coffins, key, store their wares, and to keep the bodies until families could come. So they built these buildings, and they call them funeral parlors. Well, the American architect didn't know what to call this room in the house anymore. Since it was no longer the parlor or the dying room, they called it the living room. And that's why you have, if you have one, a living room in your home. I think that sort of stuff is fascinating. This is uh, the uh, image of the first um, funeral home in America. And my, my first experience with a dead body, dead human body, was when my uncle, my father's brother, was killed in an automobile accident. I must have been seven or eight, and the body was brought back to the house, put in a casket, taken to the family home and put in the dining room in a bay window. Scared the bejabbers out of me to stay in that house. About two years later, my mother's father died. My mother's fa family were dirt poor Cumberland, Tennessee mountain people. So he died, and the custom was way back to the way we used to do it. The family washed the body, the, the sons built a coffin, the body was put in the coffin, put on sawhorses in the room in the house that was not a living room, it was a combination bedroom, sitting room, eating place 
in this shack that they lived in in the Cumberland Mountains. And so that funeral, that experience of death and dying and all that was weirdly different from my uncle's funeral, really dramatically different um, than what I had experienced. One of the principles of ordinary life is that our primary purpose on this planet, after we have met the survival needs, is growth. Now, we've talked a fair amount in here about levels of growth and stages of growth in that, and how it's possible for a person to be quite developed in one area of life and not in another. So that a person can have a PhD in some exotic discipline and still have uh, religious practices and religious beliefs that function at an adolescent level. So there's one developmental process where it's normal that everybody goes through it. We believe I am my body. And a lot of folks in American culture are stuck right here. No matter how developed they may be in other areas, we're stuck with I am my body. You just notice how many cosmetic commercials there are on television for all sorts of things, how big the plastic surgery business is, and all the efforts to keep a young body look. We are our bodies. And um, for people who are stuck at this level, death is a huge problem. Right? I mean, it just is a huge problem about what happens to the body after death. And um, one of the ways that organized religion has taken advantage of this is to tell people you can be born again. And if you're born again, that always keeps you young. Because just born people are young. And more, they're dependent on the people who give them rebirth. Right? I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a conversion experience and revolution about how we think. But being born again and again and again. Within my religious tradition, you did that a lot. It was called rededicating your life to Jesus Christ. Okay, those of you who have not been there. And then if you move on in development, you do begin to know that you're not your body, but you are your soul. You're a body that has a soul. And so after you die, this soul in you flits out after a while and circles the earth for a while. In Buddhism, that's, they do that for seven days. And uh, we Christians haven't exactly developed a timeline for this yet. Your soul leaves your body and goes around the earth and then takes off for heaven. And if you're conservative, you go up and take a right turn. <laughs> if you're liberal, you go up and you take a left turn. Get there. The, the reason I began today with can we leave the past behind is all these things that I'm t saying are past lessons. That they don't fit with our current understanding of cosmology and physics and human development and growth. Uh, but we have been born and raised to believe certain things about death and what's to come. And, and that's one of the reasons this talk today has been so autobiographical. This certainly been true for me. Um, I, I was raised in a part of American culture, both in time and place, 
where religion was a big deal. Everybody went to church in the community where I grew up. Most everybody. I know there were exceptions. But most everybody went to church. And most people, when they went to church, brought their Bible. You went to the church that your family went to. So that, you know, I knew some people who were Methodists. But I looked down on them. Because we were taught to, they read their prayers instead of praying spontaneously. We really looked down on the, the Episcopalians because they drank alcohol. We felt absolute sorrow for the Roman Catholics. Right? It was just a Christian thing to do. <laughs> but in that culture where I grew up, there was a definite life after death. And there was a need to fear death. Because if your soul was not right when you died, if you were not of the right sort, that's a phrase I learned in Ireland, um, you were not going to be with God and Jesus for all eternity. Um, you went straight to hell. Now, there are a few things about this that likely have nothing to do with actually what I'm saying today, but I do want to talk about them. Um, for one thing, it, it still amazes and stuns me to the very day, this very day, that the part of the United States in which the religion I just described was practiced, where one where almost everyone in our community went to church, most of them carrying Bibles, who honestly believed that they had a solemn, solemn obligation to witness to Jesus Christ, win souls for heaven, raise money, I mean a lot of money for foreign missions, was also the place where de facto slavery was still practiced. And within 15 miles of my home, when I was in high school, there was a lynching. That kind of cognitive dissonance about the religion that was claimed to be true on one hand and what was actually practiced on another gave some of us pause for thinking. Next was the fact that all of this is accidental. I could have been born in India. I would have been a Hindu. Or I could have been born in Asia. I would have been a Buddhist. And I would have felt that that was religion was just as true as the religion that I had been given. It was all so accidental to me. Further, as a child, the messages I got about both death and life after death were a complication of terrifying and puzzling. And, and, and though I had my first experience with death as a child when our family dog died, and those two deaths I mentioned, I did not develop a terror for death until, also as a very young child, my grandmother, the one I said is the meanest woman God ever made, <laughs> and I'm not kidding when I said that. That's true in my experience. She taught me this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake. 
if I should die? Well, I just won't go to sleep. And that's where I developed my fear of the dark, right there in that horrible prayer that was taught to children. You know, the Baptists used to brag that they did not practice infant baptism, but that's nonsense. Because after being taught that prayer, I could get, not get baptized fast enough. If baptism was going to keep me from going to hell, I wanted to be dunked as soon as possible. It didn't work. So on the other hand, if you went to heaven, why was death such a bad thing? I didn't understand that either. It was all that mixture of puzzling. Now, I don't know what images you got about life after death when you were growing up, but I want to give you some that um, have grown up. In the Christian religion in America, particularly in this part of the country over the last hundred years. Now, they all have their roots in something that's much earlier, but you'll find this intensified in evangelical Christianity, mostly in the South, okay? One image of heaven is that it's a place where needs are completed and, and, and life is fulfilled. And that image comes from a Jewish hope of what would happen when the Jews made it into the promised land. It would be a land overflowing with milk and honey where every need was met. You didn't have to worry about anything anymore. And that was the heaven that was preached in funeral services when I was a child. And we sang about it. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and all it went, you know, we was all going to be safe. Another way that heaven was presented in funerals is that it was a place where there was no sorrow. There is no sadness. God will wipe away every tear. There will be no sorrow or sadness anymore. No separation, no death. And I think this image likely came out of those periods of persecution in the church where lives are cut short way too early. And um, it came out of warfare. It came out of prolonged illness that we didn't have any way to deal with. And then there is, of course, the image of heaven being the eternal rest. And this grew out of the time where, unless you were wealthy, you worked seven days a week, except, I mean, you worked six days a week, and then you got that seventh day off. It's a rest. So heaven was a time when you didn't have to work anymore. It would just be a time of rest. The notion of hell has also always fascinated me. It sounds like a dreadful place. Um, there was a time when uh, the church used to use hell as a, a threat to get compliance from its adherents. And that's why at one time excommunication was such a powerful tool. Because if you weren't in part of the community when you died, you would, you would certainly go to hell. And, and the church has certainly also used hell as a threat to get people to walk the aisle, to accept Jesus as their personal Savior, and, and to become Christian. Um, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. It drove tens of thousands of people into churches. And I just had to type the, word, the beginning phrase, sinners in T, 
centers in T. I got 16 million results in less than a second. This is one of the best known sermons ever preached. You can get it on the internet if you want to ruin your afternoon and read it. <laughs> now, uh, there are some things about hell that I find absolutely fascinating. For one thing, <clears throat> Christians don't want to do without it. Now, this is puzzling. But um, I remember uh, I used to listen to the podcast of Rob Bell when he was at his church years and years and years ago. Rob Bell um, has gone to the, well, that's another question. But Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins about not being a hell. He became convinced, and he got kicked out of his church, which is not a small deal because his church was Joel, the size of Joel's church. He had 16,000 people a Sunday coming to church. And they said, you don't believe in hell? You can't be our pastor anymore. And then there's a great story about, of course, Carlson Pearson, who was convinced that God would not send people to hell. He had a church the same size, and they kicked him out too. What do you mean you can't be a hell? Why do people who love Jesus delight that there's a hell? You would think that hearing that, they would say, really? There's no hell? What good news? That's wonderful. But mm -mm, we got to have a hell. And another thing about hell is that I personally have no interest in spending a conscious eternity in the presence of a God who would send people to hell. Now, the church, of course, has had its own issues with this hell over the centuries because smart people like you would say, well, what about somebody like Gandhi? He wasn't a Christian. And, and um, what about little babies and people who never heard of Jesus? I mean, surely God would not send them to hell, the church thought, until they built another room on to hell. Called limbo. Is the limbo you went to limbo, which wasn't exactly bliss, but it wasn't exactly punishment either. So that's what the church did with non-believers and others. And then some other people said, but it's eternal punishment is just awful. Surely no God would do that. So the church built another room on the hell and called it purgatory. And you went to purgatory. Purgatory means exactly what it says. You go there while your sins are being purged from you. And you get your act together or something. And then some clever churchman thought, you know what? We can raise money by telling people that they can get their loved ones out of purgatory if they just give us some money. And we'll pray and get those souls out of purgatory. And that worked. St. Paul's Cathedral in London was built on that principle. And then some smart alecky monk named Martin Luther said, that's nonsense, and started this big thing called the Protestant Revolution. And here we are. And now all these concepts have kind of culturally drifted away. They don't hear about limbo and purgatory anymore. So they've gone away. My point is that all the church's teachings have been about controlling behavior, 
And I just want to say that human wholeness, no one becomes whole through fear, and human wholeness is not the result of good behavior. So, after all this, what can we believe about what happens when we die? Well, first of all, can we leave the past behind? Can we leave all this stuff? Just let it go. It's going to be hard, but we can let it go. And can we hang on to the notion that all religions are humanly constructed using the symbol system of the culture in which those religions come to be? All right, that religion isn't handed down from on high by God. Humans invent it, and we've invented some things that have not been wise nor useful. Now, I want to reiterate that I think having a religion is helpful. Uh, I, I think it's inevitable, actually, but depends on how you construct the religion that you have. And I also want to th say that religion is not the final goal in life. And I don't think that we can look to religion to give us any ultimate answers. What I find in my religion is a guide for living my life in this time. Now there's growing evidence among biblical scholars that the first creed of the church, not the first affirmation of faith, the first affirmation of faith was Jesus is Lord, but the first creed of the church, and this has not gotten a huge amount of publicity, um, but I'm going to give it some now. The first creed of the church is found in one of the earliest writings that we have in what we call the New Testament in a book called Galatians. And uh, that creed is, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among you, among us, all of you are equal. Now you will have to say for yourself, but I personally do not want to be part of a group unless this is the aspiration. That everybody belongs. Forever. Now, it's paradoxical, but I'm standing here, and you're here too, as a result of a religious understanding that's brought us into being. And that religious understanding that I inherited changes with new truths and new insights. And those come from a variety of disciplines. And that understanding that I have received caused me to leave that religion behind. Can we leave the past behind? And remember the motto which I got from Ken Wilbur. We don't abandon the religion. It's part of who we are. We transcend it. We transcend and include so for me, faith, the task of, for me, the task of faith is not believing the unbelievable, but living lovingly and truthfully and with a commitment that the freedom I want for myself, I want for you and for everybody else. 
So that the mission of my religion is not to convert people, but to transform the condition of the world so that people can be these things. Loving, honest, and free. The goal of religion is not to prepare us for some afterlife, but to equip us to live now, to love now, to be honest now, to be free now. In John, Jesus is made to say, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, abundant, overflowing, now, not later. And looking at how the world is going, our biggest need is not to know about the final future. It's to figure out how to live now. Now, we've talked in here about levels of development, and uh, most of us are stuck at, given um, Jim Fowler's model, most of us are stuck at level four. Most of us. Um, we know about five and six, but we know about it. We don't know about it. So what Jesus, who was definitely at six or beyond, calls forth from us is a paradigm shift of humongous proportions. That's scary for a four to move to. But I do want to just say it's truly delusional to think that religion has any of life's final answers. I, I believe in eternal life because I am increasingly aware that I am part of who God is and that we are all at one with what God is. And I am not this in isolation. This is not my notes, but this is one of the big, big, big failings of evangelical Christianity. It, in, it, it emphasizes individual soul salvation, which Jesus and the Jews would never have recognized. It's all about you. And Jesus is all about us, about the community, about the kingdom, about who belong. And he said every, everybody belongs. Not about individual soul salvation. It's about the salvation of the community of people. So I'm not in isolation because I'm a product of all those people, even those who did the lynchings, that are behind me. And I contribute to a future for those who come beyond me. And the way I prepare for death is to live in such a way that I can keep love and honesty and freedom flowing. So I want to close today um, by sharing with you an experience that I had uh, a few years ago, 25 years ago. Right here, I was standing right here when it happened. Eternity broke through for me right here in, that, in this spot 25 years ago. Now, if you'd been here, you may not have seen it. You might have noticed anything remarkable, but for me, it's something I would put the label miraculous on. So at that time in my teaching, I was deep into material about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus in an effort to contribute to religious literacy and to fight fundamentalism. Um, I do not recall what I was teaching this particular Sunday, but <clears throat> someone who was in attendance was upset by what I said humongously. 
and they came up to me after class. It was a man. <clears throat> he had a Bible clutched tightly up to his chest like this. He was fuming, furious, angry with me. And he got right in my face, and he started jabbing his finger like this at me and practically spitting venom at me. And he said, I get it. You don't believe in the historic, you don't believe in, in Christ. You don't believe in the literal nature of the Jesus miracles. You don't believe the Bible is literal. You don't believe in the resurrection. Oh, God, he was angry. And uh, he said, after saying that I didn't believe in the virgin birth and stuff, he said, just let me ask you one question. If you die tonight, what's going to happen to your eternal soul? Um, <clears throat> over the years, I've gotten some really vicious letters and emails and things from people, but nothing. I'd never had an encounter like that. And something came over me. You can call it the Holy Spirit if you want to. I know it was something that did not come from me, but something came through me. I found myself not at all being upset. And I opened my mouth and words came out of me that I had never thought, could not have made up, but they just were there. And I found myself saying, if I die tonight, my eternal soul is going to be right where it is this moment. In the sacred heart of God, where could I go? Nothing like that has ever happened to me before. It was like something or someone else had taken over and was in charge. I, I don't know uh, if the words that came through me made one whit of difference to the person who heard them, but they made all the difference for me. They made a life-changing difference for me because I was certain, absolutely certain, that those words that had come through me were the solid truth. It was not something I made up in my head. It was an affirmation that flowed from my heart. There's a scene in John Bun Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is probably regarded as the most significant work of theological fiction in the English language. It's a metaphor for the Christian journey. We're on a journey, you know, evolving understanding of self in one hand, evolving understanding of God in the other, following a path illuminated by the life and teachings of Jesus. <clears throat> so in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character named Christian who's come to a place where he's trying to cross a great river and the waters are billowing over his head and he's scared. He calls out to his friend, Hopeful, who's made it to the other side. And he says, hopeful, I'm scared, I'm drowning. And hopeful shouts back, be a good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is sound. None of us knows what comes next, but I can tell you experientially, I know 
There's nothing, absolutely nothing, to be frightened of. I felt the bottom. It's sound. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you.